and welcome to Meeting Room 7. This is the sixth podcast in the series from the IP team at Stevens & Bolton, in which we're talking all about patent and know-how licensing with a life sciences focus. I'm Charlie Tillett. I'm a partner in the IP team and head of our life sciences group. And for this episode, I'm again joined by two of my colleagues. We have Tom Lingard from our IP team. He has heads up our IP team. Hi there. And we also have our special guest appearance again from Catherine Penny. And Catherine is a partner in our commercial litigation team and has particular specialist knowledge in the world of arbitration. Hello. Our previous podcasts have covered issues such as defining the scope of the licensing deal, how to maintain control of the IP that's being licensed out, payment terms and common pitfalls, and termination. In part one of our discussion around disputes in our previous episode, we looked at drafting the provisions that should be included in a patent license agreement to properly prepare for disputes. In particular, clauses on governing law, jurisdiction, dispute resolution mechanisms, and thinking about enforcement. Today, in part two of our disputes focus, we're looking at the more practical aspects of bringing a dispute under an international patent license should unfortunately come to that. So thinking more about the procedure, the strategy and tactics. So we'll cover four main areas in this podcast. Pre-action considerations and what you do at the very beginning when issues arise. Tactics, where there might be settlement opportunities and enforcement of a judgment or arbitral award. So Catherine, coming to you first, when a dispute or a disagreement arises between the parties, what are the very first steps to take? Uh, well, I think the key thing is um, getting your ducks in a row. Uh, like with a lot of these things, preparation um, is, is key. So first of all, check your contract to see what the obligations are, see what the dispute, dispute resolution um, agreement has been, including applicable law and jurisdiction, uh, and if there are any escalation processes, as we talked about last time. Also have a look to see if there's any exclusions or limitations on liability um, and then moving along from the legal piece, um, gathering the facts as to what's gone on from any relevant people that have been involved. Um, think about what your losses are and what you want to achieve. As a, an outcome here and um, part of that will be taking a step back and thinking about the wider relationship with uh, your counterparty and how that will be impacted by whatever action you, you choose to take. Uh, one final thing to think about is uh, privilege, which you should try to protect as best you can. Uh, and that's particularly around any legal advice that uh, is obtained as part of this process. And in very broad terms, that means not spreading that advice too widely within your organization. Okay, thanks, Catherine. And what's the likely nature of a dispute arising from this type of a patent license agreement? And what types of loss to a business are likely to arise as a consequence, Tom? Well, it's uh, very fact specific, obviously, but there are where you're talking about a, a contract, there are the primary uh, disputes are, are likely to be breach of contract disputes, but that within that, there are a number of um, number of forms of dispute. So you could have, for example, a payment dispute, as simple as a licensee not, you know, refusing to pay the royalties that are understood to be due. And sometimes payment disputes have uh, treated differently within contracts. So there are there are ways of ways in which they are escalated or consequences, um, you know, that feed through to other parts of the agreement. And it may be that, for example, 
um, they're expressly uh, stating in the contract that a payment dispute is not a ground for immediate termination, whereas a more fundamental breach of the contract might be. Um, you then obviously have other types of, of, of breach of the license itself. So be that um, exceeding the um, the terms of, of permissions granted by the license or, for example, granting an unauthorized sub license. Um, and then you have um, more sort of nebulous disputes with like, you know, our disputes over interpretation or, or how contracts should be con construed. Um, but in addition to the, the pure sort of contractual disputes, there are obviously other related issues that often arise either separately or in parallel. So things like breach of contract, um, sorry, breach of confidence, um, which is it will normally be a, a breach of the term of the agreement, but it also actable claim as well. Um, disputes can arise about the validity of the subsistence of the know-how that's being that's being licensed under the agreement. Um, and similarly, the validity of any patents. And if um, the, the terms of the license are exceeded and, and a licensee is, is using, um, using the patent or the know-how, in jurisdictions where it shouldn't or in ways in which it shouldn't then you've also got a, a parallel potential claim for patent infringement which could have be happening in a number of, of jurisdictions so there's a there's a fairly full range there um, from a loss and damage point of view again it varies enormously sometimes it's very easy to see what the loss is if, if there's an agreed uh, royalty that has just simply stopped being paid then um, that's that's quite easy to work out the, the calculations can get more complicated if there are things like you know audit rights that need to be brought in um, but in other cases it's very hard to assess the loss so um, where there is unlicensed use or if there's um, use in a territory which there's no direct comparator for um, then it, it can be more speculative and in and in the case of for example about an infringement claim you would normally separate loss for a separate inquiry and deal with that later on so as Catherine mentioned at the start being clear about what you're seeking in the proceedings you're thinking of bringing is really important because um, there can be different types of damage and there are different types of claim and, and different um, forums for bringing those proceedings which can have an impact on, on what you can recover and from whom. Okay, thank you. Catherine, are there any particular things to consider at this stage if the agreement specifies arbitration as the dispute resolution mechanism? Not really. Um, no, uh, I mean, the parties in the litigation and to arbitration are generally encouraged to um, resolve matters as far as they can before resorting to a formal process. So at this point, no, it's um, it's the same across the board, I would say. And ideally, any dispute between the parties would be resolved at a commercial level. The commercial relationship would stay intact and the agreement would continue as it had done previously. But at what point might you decide that unfortunately this isn't going to happen without taking some further steps? Catherine? Well, I think this really depends on, um, on how the other side reacts and engages with the process. If there's motivation and engagement on both sides, um, it, it would be quite common to have uh, a two-track approach in resolving any dispute, even at this early stage. So you'd have your open line of correspondence as your first track where you're asserting your strict strict rights and uh, where you say your, your losses are and what your claims are. And then at the same time, you'd have a without prejudice or off the record track, uh, which would be the separate line of communication, which would uh, go alongside the open one, but that's in the off the record one is where the parties could uh, negotiate a deal, thrash out a commercial deal that, um, that both parties are happy with. Um, 
Now, if you're the one enforcing your rights and the other side are just sitting back and letting you bring your claims without engaging in the process, then strategically it doesn't really make much sense to open up that second track of, of off the record communication uh, because you'll effectively be negotiating against yourself and, and that's never an attractive position to be in. Um, so I don't know whether, Tom, you've got anything else to add on that. Yeah, well, as you say, it, it does depend on, on which side of the fence you're on. And ultimately, uh, most people, most sane people, we might say, want to avoid legal proceedings if they can. But um, in, at the end of the day, any pre-action correspondence and strategies about putting sufficient pressure on the other party to convince them that a settlement, a payment is a more attractive alternative than than running the proceedings through to a to a conclusion you know through the courts or by arbitration um as you said it's quite easy for as a defendant simply to sort of rebut claims and stonewall because you will know that ultimately it's for the claimant to to bring a claim to to extract payment or whatever the other relief may be um and so um it's important as a as a potential claimant to give the impression that that is what's going to happen you know to if you if a defendant sort of gets an indication that maybe you know you're you're saying all the right things in your letters for action but but there are some some hints that you don't really want to bring a claim then that can you know really embolden them to just to stonewall and do nothing um and so you know it's uh it's there's a there's a bit of sort of psychology in that almost at that point um the other thing is that you know being aggressive can in itself be quite an effective tactic particularly if your case isn't as strong as you'd like it to be you know again you can make up certainly in pre-action correspondence um instead of asserting pressure on tom by you know by being aggressive in that way but if, if you go too far it can really entrench positions it can make settlement much more difficult so it's a very fine fine line to tread and particularly if it, there's going to be an ongoing relationship either under this agreement or you know it's a customer supplier relationship and you might want to do business again in the future you don't really want to sort of fall out in such a way that you're you know you, you burn bridges it's very important i think to you know when you're in a pre-action stage and trying to to you know bring a settlement about to be clear about what an acceptable outcome would be whether you're the claimant or the defendant um in most cases it would be a shame to get to the point of issue proceedings without in some way exploring an offer or some sort of settlement um there are relatively few cases where that isn't going to be possible perhaps if there's a you know a significant infringement patent infringement case where it's a very binary you know you're either infringing or you're not but in certainly most financial disputes making some sort of offer either on a without prejudice basis under part 36 of the cpr which has certain cost consequences or even in open correspondence um is advisable because it gives you a chance at least to try and settle it but again you need to be careful about how you phrase that if you put an offer which is you know for example um there's a discount involved and that discount is kind of attributable to part of your case it can give the impression to the defendant that you know you don't believe in that bit and really you're, you're not you're not going to push it through to a conclusion um and then I think the, the final stage we often see in terms of, you know, the last roll of the dice is that if if you really are getting nowhere as a claimant, you can prepare the proceed the proceedings, a particular claim. You can send them to the defendant and say, look, I've, we've gone to the time and effort of preparing this case. Here it is, not by way of service. You've got 14 days, 28 days to to give us what we want, or we're just going to issue this and serve it on you. And that that's really, I've seen that work a number of times. But if you know, ultimately, if it doesn't you're then you're ready to go and you've literally done done everything you can. Okay, so let's assume we've got to the stage where you decide the disagreement isn't going to be resolved by pre-action correspondence. 
commercial discussions and potentially some without prejudice discussions. What do you need to decide on next? Well, I think it, before you do anything else, you need to check back at your contract again and uh, check that you've uh, complied with, with whatever escalation procedures there might be, which may include mediation, as we talked about last time. Um, I would say it's generally a good idea to tell your opponent that you're going to press the button uh, on proceedings if you haven't already done that. Strategically, there's good reasons to do that because it might bring them to the table, as Tom sort of touched upon in, in terms of actually issuing and settling to them, but also uh, so that they can't later complain that you didn't tell them you were serious about issuing proceedings and then and then turn around and say, oh, well, if you told us that, then uh, we would have done a deal with you. Um, and there can be cost consequences um, for that. Um, down the line potentially. Um, in terms of procedurally what you need to do, um, it will depend where you're, um, you're heading. If you're heading to court, uh, then you need to check which division of the court you'll be going to. You need to instruct a barrister or a solicitor to prepare your claim documents and you need to get your court fee uh, ready, of course. Um, you also need to think about whether you need to get the court's permission to serve the proceedings out of jurisdiction. Um, it's it's a pretty complex issue and probably beyond the scope of today, but it's something that's definitely worth factoring in. Um, if you've chosen arbitration, um, then you need to think about which institution or check which institution, if there is an institution named in the agreement, so the LCIA or the ICC, for example, how many arbitrators are agreed in, in the agreement, how they're to be chosen, maybe you need to propose some names to the other side to get the proceedings going. Um, and then just as for litigation, you need to prepare the actual documents themselves and, and get your fee ready to go. Um, after you've presented those initial claim documents, um, the procedure after that is fairly similar between litigation and arbitration in that the other side will have an opportunity to respond to your claim either with just a defence or they may pursue a counterclaim as well. Um, and then you get on to disclosure of documents, witness statements, uh, experts reports, and then trial or a final hearing is the nomenclature if it's an arbitration. Um, the, the thing to factor in uh, as well is once you press the button on formal proceedings, you're committed to those proceedings. And whilst it's not impossible to walk away from the proceedings, and it's quite often for proceedings to end before um, uh, a trial, um, because you reach a settlement with the other side, it, it, you do need to factor in the fact that there's usually a cost consequence of walking away sooner than at the end. Um, so just make sure you, you're going into this with, you, with your eyes wide open in terms of time and, and money required to, to take a, a case to trial. Okay, and thinking a little bit more about jurisdiction now, patent know-how licenses of this nature are very often international in scope. And how will this impact the strategy that you follow? Yeah, well, I think it definitely will do. Um, and it depends on, you know, what the type of dispute is under the agreement. Certainly a inverted commas of standards breach of contract claim, the two parties to the agreement are going to be able to resolve that in the jurisdiction contemplated in the agreement or you know whatever the other applicable rules would be on on that but if you have got third parties involved for example so sub licensees who are doing who are using products or making use of technology in different jurisdictions then it might be necessary to either join them to proceedings to make sure they're bound by any decision or to issue a separate claim against them um, similarly with with 
you know, patent infringement, obviously, it's a territorial issue. Um, and it can uh, have, well, there are huge sort of strategic implications in terms of which jurisdictions you, you want to bring that claim, whether you're talking about European patents and where any counterclaims on validity might arise. So, again, different types of claims lend themselves to different different types of arrangements. Um, but but it's, you know, it's almost as important as the, the strength of the claim itself is, to, is the tactics in terms of where you bring it, because you don't want to um, sort of run away in one jurisdiction and then find that, you know, you're, you're, you're losing out in another. So, um, yeah, certainly you would hope that most contractual causes wouldn't be um, claims wouldn't be too complicated from a, a jurisdictional point of view, but it really does just depend on, on what else is involved. And Catherine, are there any tactical considerations that are specific to arbitration? I would say the key the key thing for arbitration, um, one of its advantages is you get to choose who your arbitrator is, but uh, it's also very important then that you choose the right person because you'll you're stuck with them uh, throughout the case. And that that's true whether you've got a, a one person tribunal or a three person tribunal. Um, and, and it's important you, you pick someone who knows what they're knows what they're doing, essentially, because they'll be making a, a very important decision in all of this. Um, so that's all I would say about um, arbitration tactics at this point. So thinking now about settlement opportunities, on the assumption that in the majority of cases, the parties will not want the case to go all the way through to a trial if it can be avoided. And also, of course, when we're thinking about um, licenses of this type in the life sciences world, it's obviously very important that the parties end up getting the ultimate medicine to market and there's a you know sort of a moral moral obligation there perhaps in certain cases to try and make that happen um so when might be key opportunities to settle or bring a claim to an end there are a number i mean sometimes cases surprise you by settling when you least expect it or not settling when you're sure they, they're bound to but the times that seem to be most common would be immediately upon issuing proceedings you know if, if you've had a defendant that's stonewalling and effectively trying to call the claimant's bluff when they are faced with having to actually deal with um deal with a claim and when the cost clock has started running sometimes that can you know give rise to a quick capitulation um a lot of cases don't so much settle sort of fizzle out at a point where you know the, the claimant realizes that you know they don't have the stomach for the fight and mainly pre-action i would say that is once the, the claim has been brought that's less common then other settlement opportunities tend to coincide with the stages of proceedings so for example prior to the the parties um embarking on a large disclosure exercise there may well be an exchange of offers or, or at least an attempt to settle that because both sides know they're in for a big sort of chunk of further legal costs um if if they have to go to that next stage once disclosures underway for example then maybe you know that that ship has sailed but it may come around again when it comes down to either preparing witness statements or experts reports so there are these sort of stages in proceedings where it lends itself to, to thinking about it before the next the next chunk of costs come along and then you know the the later ones would be you know on the door on the door of the court perhaps before the significant brief is but is, is due to be paid again that's a kind of irrecoverable chunk of costs that the clients might see as a, as a good thing to try and avoid and then there are other drivers in terms of not just within the proceedings but from a commercial point of view it might be that um a uh, one of the parties wants to get the dispute office books effectively within a particular financial year or it's contemplating a sale or a transaction or an investment and it doesn't want to have the dispute hanging around because it's you know it gives it problems internally or, or within it with a with a purchaser so they can you know get parties over the line or perhaps mean a, an offer is forthcoming when it wouldn't otherwise have been the case. Okay, and Catherine, is this broadly the same with arbitration? 
Uh, yes, I'd say so. There are different stages of the process, so different opportunities before significant costs or the next tranche of costs get, get incurred. So definitely that's that's sort of the thinking in arbitration as well. And we're increasingly seeing mediation as well, as, as which would go hand in hand with the arbitration process as it is for for litigation. So it, it's, it's not like you can't uh, settle uh, as part of the arbitration process. Um, I would just say on the on the costs front, though, the rules in arbitration tend to be a bit more flexible uh, in terms of the the orders for costs which which a tribunal make might make. So um, there's a bit more predictability around cost orders in litigation, which then impacts upon settlement. So that can work either way, though. People can be more keen to settle because they're less clear on what the costs are going to be or the cost outcome is going to be, or it can work the other way as well. In the scenarios we've considered so far. Uh, there's been time for the claimants to think about what's happening and check all the facts and the contracts and give some thoughts to strategy and tactics etc but what if something happens where you need to take immediate action for example where there's been a breach of confidence what should you do then i'd say pick up the phone and find some lawyers because um what you what you can do and what you should do and uh, other options available to you will really depend on what your agreement says, um, what the nature of the breach is, the evidence that you have. Um, and regardless of whether you're in litigation or arbitration, there are there are options uh, to seek urgent relief from, from those uh, four. So um, I, I'd say pick up the phone to the lawyers. I would say that though, wouldn't I? I'm a lawyer, so. <laughs> well, you'd be right. So moving on to enforcement. Getting to the end of a trial or an arbitration isn't actually the end of the story, sadly. The next stage is to enforce the judgment or arbitral award. Patent and know-how licenses are often international in nature, nature, as we know. So how will this impact the strategy, Tom? Yeah, well, I think I think you touched, touched on this in the in part one of of, uh, of this sort of part of the, the series. But um, I think it's just, as you say, it's to bear in mind that it isn't, isn't the end of it. Um, to be honest, in most cases where you've got significant commercial undertakings, the types of businesses that tend to be parties to things like this, then they are broadly, you know, well behaved. And if they weren't going to be, you'd, you'd know by now, you know, they wouldn't have been paying their lawyers or they would have, you know, they would have, um, it would become obvious during during the proceedings. So most of the time, um, certainly with contractual disputes where you're, you know, you get a court order between two parties that are within the jurisdiction, that's not often an issue um, but as you say if there's an international element if there are other parties involved if the the judgments are particularly sort of significant um, then it may be necessary to take further steps to enforce that award um, that might be you know through further court action through threatening insolvency proceedings um, and all the other types of enforcement that are available um, but generally they will require further court process and therefore cost um, so again, factor it in at the start, and but but for the majority of cases in, in this sort of sector, enforcement isn't very often an issue. Great. And Catherine, are there any key differences with enforcement of an arbitral award? Only only to say that generally speaking, it's easier to enforce an arbitral award overseas than than a court judgment. Um, but ultimately, the processes will still be the same. It's just the first step into those processes will be a bit easier if you've got an arbitral award. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you very much to Catherine and Tom for joining me and thank you for listening. Next time, we're going to have a look at the different types of liabilities and indemnities that are appropriate for a patent and know-how license of this type and the impact or meaning of those. So please do join us next time. Thanks very much. <laughs>